Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Trials normally slow down when they get towards the end, but this is no normal trial. I'm Michael O'Toole. Welcome to another episode of the Star Shattered Lives podcast, focusing on the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. He is charged with the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Airport Hotel on the 5th of February 2016. His co-accused Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy are charged with facilitating the murder of Mr Byrne by providing cars for the gang. Neither is charged with murder. All three deny the charges and are on trial at the non-jury special criminal court, a trial which is approaching its end now. Today was a very busy day in court, so let's get down to business. Star Chief Reporter Paul Healy joins me now to discuss the day's evidence. Yeah, how's it going? You had one of your busier days today. Yeah, it was a really uh, incredible day today. Today, we finally got into the closing speeches, um, so there was a hell of a lot of information. (laughs) And the listeners might forgive me, I'm literally just back from the court. Um, So it's all fresh in my brain, but I'm also equally exhausted. But I will do my best. (laughs) And as ever, you guys didn't get any indication. It was just boom and there it was there was no you know you weren't given any advance warning really that it doesn't happen like that no i mean like we i suppose look we had an idea that it was coming but we didn't really know when um like there was a lot of uh, which we'll come to if we have time um equally interesting stuff in relation to jason bonnie and uh witnesses in relation to that so that took up a like there was a lot there that took up quite a bit of the day and then it was coming up to about 12 o'clock uh or just it was quarter past 12 really um by the time um, that uh, Fiona Murphy, a senior counsel for the prosecution, was in a position to give her closing speech. Uh, and she'd actually said to the judges, you know, look, I can do this after lunch because uh, it's going to be over an hour in length. And Miss um, Justice Tara Burns told her just basically to press on and go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, my head was already wrecked, I'll be honest, in terms of like there was a lot of information to, to digest from the witness we just heard from. Uh, who effectively contradicted much of the alibi witness stuff in relation to Jason Bonney. It was you know, that was huge stuff. We'll come back to that because I think it's it's worth uh, discussing that if we have time afterwards. But that took up a portion of the day, and then we were straight into um, this closing speech from the prosecution. Okay, so let's, as you say, I think it is important that we come back to that that direct evidence uh, about Jason Bonney. But let's talk about uh, Miss Murphy's closing speech. I was one of the questions I was going to ask was how long did it last? Because I you know, closing statements can last quite a long time. So it was about an hour, was it? It was about an hour in length, uh, whereas Brendan Gretton's argument following her later in the afternoon was uh, over two hours in length. So that's the difference there. A couple of things that is worth talking about, um, you know, just in the outset, that's something, an observation, really. Uh, it's not It's not a opinion necessarily, just an, an interesting observation. We had two closing speeches today, so from prosecuting counsel Fiona Murphy and then from Brendan Graham, uh afterwards. And the difference between the two of them really was that uh, in in my uh, perspective from what I've seen, that Fiona Murphy read out a statement. Um, she had kind of a prepared statement that she read from and she kept to that uh, 
you know that particular um read out statement prepared statement whereas mr Gretton was a little more i'd say a little more freelance uh had written notes but and was referring to them but was um addressing various points um at a much slower pace um and didn't have like a a prepared script that he read from the entire time so that was just the difference between the two of their approaches and then in following miss murphy's evidence I will admit it was quite difficult uh, by comparison to Mr. Gretton. People might be wondering why I have full quotes from Brenda Gretton and I have partial quotes from Miss Murphy. That's because Miss Murphy just simply spoke a lot faster. Um, so as a result of that, um, just trying to keep up with her and to get the highlights of what she said, just to explain that. that that's interesting because that reminds me of listening to the audio tapes. I found it almost impossible to transcribe the audio tapes because when we normally cover court cases, it's effectively either a judge talking or two people having a, one person asking questions, the other a, a witness answering questions, barrister and witness. And it is a much slower pace. So when when uh, Dowdall and Mr. H and Hutch were talking on the tapes, it was quite fast because it was a normal conversation. So that, that's interesting that you find that difficult there as well. Yes. Uh, and so when live tweeting this, uh, you know, it was just important that I that I was able to tweet um accurately so uh, not necessarily I didn't pick up every single uh, sentence she said but I got the essence of what she said um so look I, I don't propose to go through uh, this in absolute forensic detail uh, because people know the basic facts of the case in terms of the CCTV footage showing the vehicles and the movements of the vehicles and the timing so she did it in chronological order in terms of the evidence against all three men uh, from from the beginnings of things on the 4th of February into the 5th of February and then the movement of the vehicles driven um, by Paul Murphy and by Jason Bonney allegedly uh, right up to the St. Vincent's GA car park and the times in which they're seen there etc. What I thought was interesting is that she has the, the, for the first time definitively said that the person on the CCTV footage getting into the BMW X5 that the state says was driven by Bonney uh, was Kevin Murray, was flat cap Kevin Murray. So we, we heard it was a flat capped individual. She says the state's uh, position that it was Kevin Murray that got into the uh, into this vehicle. And then she kind of went through all the movements of those vehicles in and out of St. Vincent's GAA. Um, in relation to Paul Murphy, right? Paul Murphy is on, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to highlight this, maybe at the end of this podcast, maybe the end of the week, we can go into a bit more detail uh, about these two lads because there there's more to be heard about them but to sum up right Paul Murphy is on CCTV at various different points and he doesn't dispute the fact that he has been picked up on CCTV and even identified himself in it so she was effectively arguing he, he he's there on the tapes you can see him and his vehicle goes straight up to the Vincent's GAA uh, and and is seen picking up and is part of the convoy involved and um, and his argument that his taxi could have been cloned she says doesn't hold water because uh, he has identified himself on CCTV, so uh, basically saying here he is with the taxi right up to a crucial point. Um, so his argument doesn't really hold up, she says. Uh, Jason Bonney then, I, I'll come back to this in further detail, but basically she says his alibi witnesses don't hold water, that there is evidence there. To the contrary, this allegation that his father uh, was driving the vehicle instead of him, she said, doesn't add up, that they, there, there are witnesses which have said that uh, Mr. Bonney's father was home all day um, having lunch, um, and, there, and there was a witness, which I'll come back to, to corroborate that. Um, 
so he's on CCTV seen leaving his house and his BMW goes into the Buckingham Village area where all these vehicles meet up, as does Paul Murphy's vehicle, and they go and they go to the St. Vincent's GA. So I'm summing that up as quickly as I can there in relation to those men. When it comes to Mr. Hutch, it's it's two things, uh, two pillars in this investigation, which we've talked about at length, which is the tapes and then the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall. Okay, so she, she first uh, spoke to the admission that was allegedly made by Jerry Hutch. Uh, she actually said the 7th of March, then corrected herself further down uh, and said the 7th of February. Um, so she talked about the Sunday World picture and the fact that it was... Uh, a pixelated picture she explained that perhaps Jonathan Dowdall um, that his there was a conflation of memory in relation to that because if you remember uh, he was challenged on the witness stand that he had recognised the person in the Sunday World photo the man in drag as being Patrick Hutch and it was put to him that how can you recognise it as Patrick Hutch when the photo was pixelated in the Sunday World well it, she, she explained that within a couple of weeks there was an unpixelated photograph and so perhaps he's conflating his memory in relation to that she said uh, this is a time when tensions were were heightened and she said there was independent evidence from uh, con o'callaghan from three hutchins in ireland that there were cell sites in the area and that dowdall's phone pinged off a cell mast at 15 16 on the 7th of february uh, around you know within uh, uh, the weekend anyway where he says that he met Jerry Hutch and this confession happened. Um, she said the court had heard evidence as to why other cell masks in the area might have been busy, so this particular cell tower would have picked it up. Uh, so she said that there was effectively an admission right from the mouth of Jerry Hutch, um, but it wasn't the only admission from Jerry Hutch, and she pointed to the audio, and she came back to that later on. Um she said, look, if it was the case, uh, as the defence put it, that Jonathan Dowdall was a quote-unquote careful schemer, uh, that, that maybe it would have been easier for him to uh, to lie uh, about when this confession happened and say that it happened on the 20th of February, for example, because if you remember, uh, there were NSU photographs of Jerry Hutch and Dowdall up in Donegal, Shane Rowan's home, on the 20th of February, and this was actually not the day of the secret recording. So she's saying it would have been easier for Dowdall to claim that the confession happened there, um, knowing what he knew from the book of evidence. Uh, yet, uh, he, you know, it speaks to his credibility, she's saying, um, that this allegation is, is, is something uh, on a different date and it's corroborated by this phone evidence. So in other words, she's saying he could have made it up on the 20th. Yes. He could have, yeah, okay. And it would have been easier for him to do mm. that, she said. She said, look, he served a hefty sentence in prison for the torture of Alexander Hurley. Uh, she called it a, a I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but she, she, she said it was a horrific, a very serious, disgusting offence. Um, and, and look, he is also a man that admittedly told lies in the past. She was making no bones about the fact that Dowdall is an admitted liar in the past. And she said, look, these are all things that wouldn't necessarily endear you to him as a person, but that doesn't mean that he isn't telling the truth about the confession in Whitehall. Can I ask, Paul, before you go on, sorry, um, I know that Brenda, and we will come to this, that Brenda Gren spoke about the yokes. Did Miss Murphy speak about the yokes? Yes, the yokes, uh, she, which she said are, are the AK-47s. Um, and I, I, I'll come to that. Sorry, I'm probably 
uh, getting ahead of myself, but in terms of the AK-47s, that is where all of the incriminating language is in relation to Jerry Hutch and things that he says about the movements of those weapons. I'll come back to that, sorry, in a moment, Mick. Um, Just, I want to refer to... uh, Yes, the cross-examination of Jonathan Dowdall, you know, she mentions that that was done expertly by Brendan Graham and that that he was ashamed and embarrassed on the witness stand. Uh, But again, she's saying that that doesn't take away from the audio tape or from the independent evidence which corroborates uh, the movements uh, and the the allegations that Dowdall is making. So, for example, the Richmond Road meetup, right? Uh, he's saying that Jerry Hush met him on the Richmond Road and his father handed over the hotel keys on the 4th of February. And there's phone evidence in relation to that that shows they were in the Richmond Road area at the time, he says. So there is corroborating evidence independent of Dowdall and uh, some of the things that happened on the witness stand over those dramatic seven days, she's basically arguing. Um. So look, in, in in she's coming to the, what you're asking me about now uh, on the audio. Uh, she's saying, look, there's a whole conversation between Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall on this tape about the three yokes, the AK-47 rifles, um, and 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 throughout this, she's saying that it appears that Jerry Hutch is the man in charge, uh, and that he is the one in control of the situation, and is talking about giving these yokes. Uh, as a gift to the lads up north and about um, throwing them up north, I think is the quote from Jerry Hutch. Um, and, and she is making the argument that he is the one in charge, he is the one directing that this happens at a crucial point in time, just after the Regency Hotel incident had happened. And two days before the weapons were found to be in transit and Shane Rowan was caught with them. So she's saying all of that is crucial in that Jerry Hutch had knowledge of this, was talking about moving them at a time when they were in transit, and that's hugely significant. She's also saying that throughout this conversation about talking about the Regency, there's no denials from Jerry Hutch and no point where he pushes back or denies involvement when Dowdall says things like, you never said it was used at the Regency and stuff like that. Um, so she said, look, it's clear that the yokes were thrown up as a present. They were a gift. The gift... Uh, that Jerry it was Jerry Hutch's gift to give. Um, there was also something about a massive statement, if you can remember in the tapes, a massive statement that Jerry Hutch said that uh, the use of the yokes in the Regency Hotel was a quote-unquote massive statement. Uh, again, she's pointing to that being um, not a form of admission, but a, a guilty statement, and again, no denials from him here. And we came to the crucial point where... Dowdall says, you never admitted to them that that was anything to do with use. And Hutch says, yeah, he knows, yeah. And according to the prosecution, according to Miss Murphy, she says that is clearly an admission by Jerry Hutch uh, to the murder of David Byrne. Um, I, I could go on and on, but basically uh, that she got to a juncture which shocked us where she said that the prosecution is alleging that the that Mr. Hutch was w- one of the two tactical gunmen that personally shot David Byrne. So if you remember when the Regency shooting happened, um, David Byrne, he, he was first shot by, uh, I think, Tactical 1 and then uh, subsequently shot by Tactical 2 who got up onto the desk uh, looked down at him and, and 
fired effectively the the fatal shots. It was yeah, and I I know I watched the video in in the previous trial of Patrick Hutch. I'm sure you did as well. It was extremely callous, and I I seem to remember that Mr. Burton he essentially escaped like with everybody else, but then he ran back. I think he was looking to try and protect one of his friends. Maybe in Daniel Kent, I don't know, but he was he went back into the danger zone, and that's when he was shot by one man and he was lying badly injured, and then someone got up and you know rather coldly dispatched him essentially. Yes, well, that was significant. So it's shocking that she's saying it's the prosecution's case that, that he was one of those two gunmen that, that shot David Byrne. It's even it's even closer to the bone than the previous allegation that he was one of the six. So he's one of the two tactical that shot him. And then in closing up her evidence, uh, she said, look, um, there, there's a, uh, maybe you remember this, Mick, there is a point on the audio where Hutch and Dowdall are talking about something else in which they you know where you might hold up a building and hutch says something about well uh, he'd hold up a building for five minutes and give it and get out and she says in context of that well that's exactly what happened jerry hutch held up a building came out and gave it and and here he is on the tapes arranging for the onward transport of the items that he used the guns and she said that all of that in tandem shows beyond a reasonable doubt that Jerry Hutch is guilty of murder. So she paints you, so, so she essentially, like all closing statements by prosecution counsel, she brought all the strands that she believed were relevant to her case, she brought the, to the state case, she brought them all together and wrapped them up in a bow and presented them to the judge for consideration. Yeah, and I mean, look, it was compelling towards the end when she wrapped all of that up in a tight, neat bow in terms of when you take all of this evidence together, it shows, as she says, beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Hutch is guilty. Now, that's when I say compelling. I mean, it's just obviously compelling to hear that. That's not me giving an opinion as to whether I I believe that evidence or I think any which way or the other. I'm just saying it was very interesting to hear uh, the prosecution come to the point where they're saying they they were describing in more than one sentence the reasons why uh they believe Jerry Hutch is guilty. And closing statements are all important for that very nature because, you know, the case, the prosecution case is about building bricks and you try and present, you put your best foot forward, like, like the defence, but I know we'll talk about Mr. Graham in a minute. You put your best foot, foot forward and you try to persuade and you throw, you bring everything together and as I say, you present it to the judge. So that's that's essentially what happened. So I, I thought I thought we might be done then, um, but uh, we we were we went for a lunch break and we were told then that Brendan Grehan would give his closing speech in the afternoon. So we made a lot of progress in uh, today, and and that was very dramatic evidence indeed. Okay, so that was Miss Murphy for the the prosecution, and next up was uh, Brendan Grehan, senior counsel, who is Gerard Hutch's defence lawyer. Yes, and uh, you know, as we're well versed in now by this stage, uh, Brendan Grehan is a, a a very dramatic orator. Uh, you know, uh, everything he says, every kind of second sentence is a headline. Really, uh, it's a dream for a headline writer, anyway, in terms of the content that he says. So his evidence, as I said, he 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 just gives it, and it and it makes no difference in terms of the judges sit down. They're going to look at the facts of the case. Uh, well, it makes a difference, I suppose, in terms of uh you know maybe finding him compelling but but uh, you know i'm just i'm just describing the difference i suppose in 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 the two of them um miss murphy read out her statement and was quite matter of fact uh, mr gretton is just generally speaking from from someone sitting in the courtroom 
quite an interesting person to listen to. He speaks uh, quite, he's quite dramatic uh, and a little bit uh, slower pace. And that's what it was easier for me to follow and to, to live tweet for sure. So I don't really know where to where to begin. To be honest with you, like this is was extraordinary evidence. He is very good, and uh, you know that, that must be said. I mean, I could I could watch these barristers all day. It's just really, and we'll talk about the arguments and all we put forward. But it is, uh, it is. I, I mean, I would urge anybody the next time any big trial is going just to go in and see the performance of these barristers. It really is another level. Oh, it's it's something else. Well, anyway, he 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 began by immediately challenging uh, what what Miss Murphy had had just said. Um, you know, look, she's stating the state is uh, prosecution is stating that Mister Hutch confesses on this tape, uh, and one of the first things that Mister Grehan says is, "I challenge anyone to find any unambiguous admission in the audio." And he came back to that later on in that there he was making the case that there is no unambiguous, ambiguous, struggle with that word, uh, obvious admission from Jerry Hutch on the tapes whatsoever. And even this, he knows, yeah, uh, statement he's arguing is is isn't really an admission and is is taken out of context in terms of he says the judges need to listen to the tapes as a whole and not to the, the court needs to take the, the tapes as a whole and not to just cherry pick uh, specific elements of the tapes um in isolation um so that, that very um compelling argument uh, right from the beginning and then in terms of the firearms uh so mr grehan talks about um how miss murphy talked about how jerry hutch appeared to be in control of the firearms and the movement of the firearms at a time that was crucial uh, just following the regency hotel incident and he basically said well that's not really the case uh, this was a, 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 at the very least over a month after the regency at best uh, had taken place so it wasn't like this was immediately the same day or day after um, in terms of that, then this is what I think is really interesting. You'll you probably found this interesting, even just reading this, Mick. Um, that Mr. Grehan said that while he's not, uh, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, he's not making any admissions on behalf of his client in terms of guilt, uh, in terms of any other offence, but he does, he did say that there's a possibility that there is incriminating stuff said by jerry hutch on these tapes in relation to the firearms but uh, the way he said again this is where he speaks in headlines he said news flash mr hutch is not charged with any firearms offenses he's charged with murder and that is a real biggie for a couple of reasons let's go back to the patrick hutch trial patrick hutch who the case against him was dropped was an only perspective and we've been through that he was charged with murder. He was also charged with possessing the Kalashnikovs used in the killing. Jerry Hutch is charged with murder. He's not charged with anything else. And if you listen, if you think back to some of the questions that listeners asked us about, you know, could if if they, you know, could they could the court find him not guilty of murder but guilty of something else? And I got legal advice on this, and it's no. The issue paper or the charge paper says murder, and that's it. So there's nothing else. So Shane, really. So it's very clever from Mr. Gretton. I think I think I'm just reading some of the notes that he said the court may find about the firearms, but as you say, he's not charged with firearms. Yes, and and that's important to state that. Um, 
he then spoke to uh, Miss Murphy's allegation in her statement that Jerry Hutch was one of the uh, tactical gunmen in the Regency Hotel. And he says, where could she possibly be getting this from? Uh, wh- where does that come from? And he says, the only place that, that could come from is from Jonathan Dowdall and his word. And he spent quite a bit of time on Jonathan Dowdall. And he says that the prosecution's case ultimately stands or falls on Jonathan Dowdall's evidence. Um, the accused, Jerry Hutch, he says, is presumed innocent and shouldn't have to, you know... Uh, make a case uh, as to anything it's up to the prosecution to prove their case it's important that he stated that because I think people might have the question why didn't Jerry Hutch take the stand or give evidence about his whereabouts on that day well Mr. Gretton spoke to that and basically said that it isn't up to Mr. Hutch uh, to prove anything it's up to the state to prove their case and it's a high bar. Remember, it's not the balance of probabilities in a civil case. It's beyond reasonable doubt. So in any, and I'll just speak generally about this, in any defence case, and anybody is, you know, defending, is being defended, it's up to the prosecution to prove. The defence don't have to prove anything and the prosecution have to pre- prove that nobody would have a doubt beyond reasonable doubt. Yes, and, and just, uh, I'm going to get through as much of this as I can, sorry. Um he he put it that it was the shining jewel, the prosecution's shining jewel in the case is is, is if it is the audio, um, uh, he made the point. Well, the, the cops, the guardie had this audio of Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall since March of twenty sixteen. Why then did it take until two thousand and twenty one for a European arrest warrant, uh, to be issued for Jerry Hutch? If there is this, if there is crystal clear admissions on this to murder on this tape. As he, as the state is claiming, if there are admissions on this tape, well, why did it take so long uh, for there to be a, a arrest warrant for Mister Hutch? I I could go on about what he says about Dowdall for some time, but he called him uh, a liar as and, and a proven liar, and went through multiple various examples um, to basically state that. Um, and then he says that effectively what Miss Murphy did in her closing argument was try to marry the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall with the audio. Uh, and he's saying that these are two, ha- two bad halves and they don't make a whole uh, if you when you put them together. And I think at the end of his uh, speech ultimately said something similar that they're trying to marry two horses and then they're falling in between. Um, Trying to uh, the state is trying to cement two different things together to make their case, and and no, neither of them hold water is basically his argument. I was just going to say, look, headline writers are going to have a field day tomorrow, I imagine, with reference to a cartoon character. Yes, so uh, that's interesting <laughs> because um, look, yeah, he called out all a liar and uh, a perjurer, and <clears throat> then compared him to he just said a certain cartoon character uh, who says I didn't do it. Um, God, I don't want to get this wrong now. I should be a fan. I can't get the full quote. But he compared them to uh, to Bart Simpson in, in terms of his lies. Uh, people saying it wasn't me and I didn't do it. That sounds like so many journalists I know. Probably myself as well. <laughs> yeah, so he, look, he said uh, Donald was a tainted witness. Uh, he was not a neutral witness. He himself was charged with the murder of David Byrne. He was just finishing a lengthy sentence uh, himself when he was charged with murder. And he was facing the real prospect of not getting bail. Then went in on detail uh, about how 
Um, ultimately, it came to the point where the Gardaí didn't object to Jonathan Dowdall getting bail in relation to his murder charge. And he was insinuating that at that point there was a deal being made and the guards were facilitating an interview with him. And that's why they didn't object to bail. He said that was something that was frankly unheard of. Um, and clearly, uh, no matter it, whether somebody tries to say that there was no sweet deal happening, Jonathan Dowdall thought in his mind that he was getting a deal and that he, uh, in exchange for dropping the murder charge, would give evidence in in this case. And that has to be taken into consideration as well, he's saying. And sorry, just to say one more thing. We, st- we still, even at this stage... We still, as far as I'm aware, we still don't know if Mr. Dowdall has been admitted into the witness security programme. He's being assessed for it, but there's nothing, there's no finality about it. If he's got it, he probably will. But just from what we understand at this stage, he hasn't been admitted to that programme. You know, it was said in court today that he has not been admitted to the programme. Uh, the, 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 the word yet wasn't said after that, so I don't know whether there's been some development since we last it actually was just said that he has not him and his family have not been admitted to the witness protection program um the, maybe maybe that was missing the word yet um but but anyway sorry did did, did miss murphy that's say that paul miss murphy said that yeah oh, that's no that's interesting maybe that is yeah, it could be just a word missing word I don't, it's significant she didn't say yes yeah she didn't say yes that's all i can say uh, we spent a bit of time then with Mr. Gretton on the booking of the room and uh, Patrick Dowdall and all of that. And he was arguing, you know, why didn't they go into the main car park? Perhaps that's because Jonathan Dowdall didn't want to get picked up by CCTV. Um, and he says that Jonathan Dowdall repeatedly said that he could, his father could corroborate his story about the hotel keys being given to Jerry Hutch. Um, yet Patrick Dowdall was never called. And he asks, why is that? Um, and, and says, could that be that because Patrick Dowdall, um, there'll be a lot of questions for, for him, a lot, a lot of difficult questions for him. Um, and and he, he said that while Jonathan Dowdall kept saying, insisting that his father could corroborate and back up his story, he said, actions speak louder than words. And that's not what transpired in this case. So he spoke to that and he also said that in relation to the transaction, the buying of the room, he said he called it a bogey transaction. And why did it take six people to book a hotel room? Um, you know, why was Patrick Dowdall, Patsy Hutch, Patricia Dowdall and Patricia Dowdall's father and uh, all of these people involved in this process of booking a hotel room? And he, he was he was saying that things don't add up and it's a very unusual thing. And we haven't maybe gotten to the bottom of that. Sorry, just Paul, just can just ask quickly. Um, you said that Mr. Grant spoke for about two hours, and Miss Murphy yes. spoke for about one hour. Um, yes. Obviously, he had an awful lot to say. Did he keep his raptured? Shall we say? Did he? You know, were you into what he? Yeah, was and saying? I don't want to keep. I don't want to keep you for two hours, uh, but uh, yeah, like I uh, know it, it, it was it was fascinating the whole way through. He didn't really know where he was going to go next. It, he didn't necessarily keep to. Uh, like Miss Murphy's uh, evidence was uh, statement was quite structured, and she went in chronological order in terms of the events. Uh, whereas uh, Mr. Grattan, I don't want to say he was all over the place, but he he, he was he was um, not speaking in any necessary uh, structure, you know, obvious order. Um, so you didn't know what was coming next. So he was <laughs> was paying attention to to literally every word, um, that he said, um. He talked a bit about the Richmond Road meeting and and how Jonathan Dowdall, um, upon 
cooperating uh, upon being charged with murder would have had would have had access to the book of evidence and known about Sarah Sked's evidence and the mobile phone data and was implicating that that's why he was talking about Richmond Road being the spot where this happened because he knew that himself and his phone his father's phone had pinged off an area in the Richmond Road on that day so that would help corroborate his story so again he said that had to be taken into consideration that Dowdall had access to uh, the book of evidence and, and would have known that that information was there Oh yeah, uh, sorry, well first we'll talk about the park meeting, right, the central allegation by Jonathan Dowdall, the, the meetup in the park uh, in Whitehall um, he spoke Mr. Grehan spoke to the fact that uh, Jonathan Dowdall's story on this uh, evolved over time, but one thing that he appeared to be clear on throughout is that this meeting with Hutch happened at around 11.30, that it happened in the morning. And he says basically, effectively, that neither on the 7th nor the 8th is there any evidence to support that Jonathan Dowdall met Jerry Hutch in the morning. And he says that the state is now trying to turn around and say that this missing three hours where his phone isn't pinging off anything, um, that that could have been the time when he met Jerry Hutch. But he says there was never any suggestion that he was with Jerry Hutch in a park in Whitehall for three hours. And there was never any suggestion at all in the case up until now, neither from Jonathan Dowdall nor anyone else, uh, that his phone was off or anything like that. And it was never said by the witness. So if memory serves me, he initially said his evidence was that he met Jerry Hutch on the 8th, because we remember the 8th of February, because that's the day that Mr. Hutch's brother, Eddie or Nettie, was murdered. So it was a memorable day, but I think under maybe cross-examination, whatever he conceded it may have, or he said it may have been the 7th, the day before, which was a Sunday. Yes, uh, and I, we could go over that again, but yes, that that is exactly the case. Um, but but it's, so you know, it was then um, a possibility that he had gotten the day wrong, perhaps as the prosecution were saying, and uh, that that it happened at this time at a quarter past three in the afternoon on the seventh rather than on the eighth, as he had been saying. But it, Mr. Gretton said that Dowdall's story was repeatedly that it happened in the morning, and there's nothing to support that. Uh, then in relation to the audio uh, again this is another point that Mr. Grehan brought up uh, in that isn't it extraordinary he says that there was this confession in the park from Jerry Hutch to Jonathan Dowdall and yet in a 10 hour conversation uh, it never came up once um, and he says we know that Mr. Dowdall can't keep his mouth shut and yet it never comes up Jonathan Dowdall did ask an awful lot of questions on the tapes you can see I'm not saying he's trying to wheedle information out of him but he's, he's having a conversation with Jerry Hutchin and starting conversations so yeah I mean it was 10 hours he's, he's right and then Jonathan Dowdall had, had said on the stand that Jerry Hutch in the tapes is lying to him uh, and that is, that is what's happening on these tapes but He's saying, Mr. Grattan's saying, well, why would Mr. Hutch lie to him in an unguarded conversation? And uh, in, especially in light of the fact that he had only recently allegedly confessed to murder to him, why would he now suddenly be lying to him? And he said it would it just makes absolutely no sense. Um, so he, he just says this, the suggestion that Jerry Hutch had confessed to him is is highly unlikely in the extreme and he points to the fact that Jonathan Dowdall based off his own evidence had said that he barely knew Jerry Hutch he would have known him to see through boxing club he knew Patsy Hutch much better but why would uh, Jerry Hutch uh, confide in a person um, that Dowdall admits uh, he barely knew so yeah then we come on to the you know he called Dowdall a proven liar an admitted liar and a perjurer this is where the Bart Simpson reference came in 
uh, he admitted to lying uh, to a previous bench of the Special Criminal Court when he was charged with the torture and waterboarding of Alex Hurley. And he said, uh, Mr. Grattan said that Dowdall lied to this court as well. Um, so he's been caught lying multiple times. Uh, he was a proven liar in terms of when he went on Joe Duffy's live line and said that he wasn't a criminal and he didn't know why his home was being searched. And uh, Mr. Grattan said that that is evidence that he's a persuasive, convincing, confident and practiced liar. Um, throughout the trial, he said that uh, said things like, I'm not telling the truth, but I'm not telling lies. Um, and Mr. Gretton again said he he looked throughout this whole process he he told all manner of lies big lies little lies anything um, if he thinks he can get away with it. Um, so <laughs> so he hammered him really he, he really, really hammered, hammered him he, he really hammered him and he he said there's too many lies to go through it would actually take days to go through them all. In relation to the explanation of tablets, you know, Dowdall said that he was on tablets uh, when he was on Liveline and when he was in the car with Hutch. Um, Mr. Grattan said he'd never come across anything like that before. Uh, that's where the quote is. In effect, he was a bit like a cartoon character who says, I didn't do it, nobody saw me do it, you can't prove anything. Well, that's a famous Bart Simpson quote. So that's where that came in. Uh, he says that Dowdall was an evasive witness, impossible to tie down, and the court heard how he answered questions uh, by going on long monologues or avoiding answering the question altogether. Uh, at that point, he took a break, and when we came back then, uh, he said that in the tapes, we've got Dowdall talking about planting bombs, lining up bombs, assassinations, kidnapping people, and all the rest of it. Um, and he, he ultimately concluded that if anything, these Dowdall was worried about these tapes. Dowdall was the person who would be worried about these tapes coming out rather than Jerry Hutch, because he's the one that says all of these incriminating things uh, that he dismissed away in court and, and said were not real. Uh, he says isn't it, he'd be pointed to the fact that he thought it was ridiculous that Dowdall explained that he knew about waterboarding and bomb making from the television he said that that's not exactly family friendly TV um, and, and even if you were looking at certain programs where you might learn that it's extraordinary that you then try and act out what you've supposedly learned from the TV without killing somebody so Paul it, it, it you know two hours is an awful long time and he and, and he he clearly got Mr. Graham clearly got enough landed enough lot of punches but I'd be interested in you know how did he end his speech? Well, he ended his speech by saying, "Look, there's quite simply no ironclad admissions from Jerry Hutch at all in these confessions, and you know Jerry uh, John Dendowdall is a proven liar, and nothing that he said uh, can necessarily be taken in tandem." He he said that the prosecution have sought to ride two horses in this matter, and in effect marry them off at the end of the case, uh, but they but that they, they've fallen down in between. Um, the, he, he's basically said, said that the prosecution haven't made out the case where you could be satisfied about the guilt of Jerry Hutch. Um, towards the end there, he also brought up, you know, that yes, perhaps there is, although he makes no uh, concessions, um, there is talk of criminality in relation to firearms. But again, it, it pointed out that there's nothing there to suggest that he's guilty of the offence of murder, and that's the only offence before the court. And I thought this was also interesting. He said that there is no evidence that Jerry Hutch was even in the country on the 5th of February. There's no evidence before the court, that is, that Jerry Hutch was in the country on the 5th of February, let alone in the Regency, save for Jonathan Dowdall's word. 
Now, that falls in line with, well, Jerry Hutch hasn't actually had to answer that question. Um, and, and and he has, the, the, Mr. Grattan, the way he's explained that is that it is up to the state to prove their case, not for Jerry Hutch to prove anything. Um, and he hasn't taken the witness stand. So I just thought that was a compelling statement that Mr. Grattan said out loud, that there is no evidence that, that his client, Jerry Hutch, was even in the country, let alone in the Regency, apart from Jonathan Dowdall's word. Um, and, and he went on at length uh, tearing apart Jonathan Dowdall's word and his reliability uh, throughout those two hours. So there was no messing from either of the senior counsel today. They really went for it, the pair of them. No, they, yeah, they really went for it. And, and uh, I'm going to say that phrase, but it will be up to the judges now <laughs> to decipher to that and to, uh, to, to, to look at that in great detail. But it's a compelling case, a uh, hugely compelling. So what happens tomorrow? You would think that tomorrow would probably be the last day of the case? Yeah, it's looking like tomorrow will be the final day and we're just 12 weeks in. As they said, the trial was going to be 12 weeks, weeks in length. So we have Bernard Condon uh, and John Fitzgerald uh, representing uh, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy and they will give their closing speeches tomorrow and, and that will end the case and then the judges will go off and deliberate and come back with their judgment, I presume, in a number of months' time. And it's it's possible that Miss Justice Tara Burns, the presiding judge, might give an approximate date as to when that judgment will come back. Yes, yes, hopefully. <laughs> um, do we want to talk briefly about what was heard in the morning? Or I, I, I think we should, just very briefly, just for context, because I think it is important. This was about the evidence, The it's it's about the alibi evidence of for Jason yeah, Bonner and Estes. I, think we might come back over this in more detail tomorrow in relation to to Jason Bonney but just to briefly tell people that this morning was also very interesting in that uh, if you might recall the previous day there was a witness uh, for Jason Bonney uh, that kind of halted matters and this was uh, the the uh, individual Peter Tyrrell who said that he'd seen Jason Bonney's father driving the BMW X5 this would have been roughly about five minutes after the hit team were supposed to have um, escaped and this BMW was used to help them escape and he saw this uh, this jeep being driven by Jason Bonney's father which corroborates Jason Bonney's claim that it was his father driving the vehicle and not him uh, but the shocker today was that uh, the prosecution called a witness uh, Mr Paul Byrne who is the brother-in-law of Jason Bonney and uh, Mr Byrne states that he spent the day the 5th of February with uh, Willie Bonney Jason Bonney's father uh, and his explanation for that without getting into great detail about it was he can remember because he went on a holiday to Gran Canaria they came back on the night of the 4th and as is normal on a Friday they would go over to Willie and Greta Bonnie's house and have lunch with them and spend a couple of hours with them and he can distinctly remember he says going to Willie Bonnie's house and having the lunch with them and spending a number of hours with them between midday and about four or half four on the 5th of February and that Willie Bonnie he says never left the house and he also says Willie Bonnie never drove the BMW X5 he always knew him to drive a uh, Lexus a black Lexus Jeep um, and so look that directly contradicts uh, the alibi evidence of Mr. Bonnie in that there's a claim here um, that Willie Bonnie, who is now dead, so can't defend himself, uh, spent the in- the entire day in his home and, and not uh, driving a car, being part of a hit team, uh, helping a hit team to escape, rather. Sorry. So that's really interesting. And, you know, seeing things like this, I always sit there and go, how could you be a judge? How could you differentiate between the two and decide because you know the, the, the people have gone in and have sworn evidence so I, I wouldn't be a judge having to decide that I have to say 
Well, I mean, this witness was pretty crystal clear in that he can remember this day. He says you remember things like he can remember where he was on the day of 9-11. Well, he can remember where he was on the 5th of February. He remembers hearing about the Regency Hotel incident uh, on the news and that he was in Willie Bonney's house at the time. I mean, that's that's very interesting. But also, you know, for balance, Miss McGlynn, one of the previous the previous one of the alibi witnesses says she remembers the day because it was her young young child's birthday. Yes, she said it was her child's birthday and, and she claims that Willie Bonney was in her house. She saw him getting into the BMW X5 after leaving her house and she saw Jason Bonney going across the road to the building site and she says she saw Jason Bonney at a time when, if the state's case is to be believed, he should have been over at the Vincent's GAA club. So, uh, it's interesting to see where that'll go. We'll get more on that tomorrow uh, when it comes to the closing speeches for those two men. But we have come to the end of the trial in relation to Jerry Hutch. So a huge day today. Uh, I, d- I didn't even touch on, I'd say, 50%, but I gave you the highlights there. And maybe maybe when we do finish up this podcast for the week, we'll, we'll try to give you anything that we did miss. But um, thanks again for listening. Th- thanks very much, Paul. And thanks to listeners. Great stuff. <laughs>